Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. And here to help us understand what is going on in the world before we get to the investment perspective is Professor Jeffrey Sachs. He is a professor at Columbia University. He is also the uh, author of the Global Index on Sustainable Development Goals for the United Nations. And Professor Sachs uh, has written uh, about international trade as well as U.S. politics, and he joins us here in our 1130 studios. So, Professor Sachs, thanks very much for being here. Yeah, Let's uh, maybe just describe for people what exactly is the Global Index on Sustainable Development Goals? The idea of sustainable development is that we should watch not only GNP and the economic indicators, but also the uh, social indicators of inequality, health, violence, and the environmental indicators on climate change and pollution. So this index looks at the economic the social, and the environmental conditions of countries all over the world. And we uh, take a look at whether they're making progress towards the goals that we've set. For example, when we agreed in Paris to take uh, limit uh, the global warming, are our countries really doing that? So where does the United States rank in this global index? Not very well. Uh, Of course, it does well on the economic side, broadly speaking. We're a rich country. Uh, But on the social side, we have about the highest inequality of all of the high-income countries of the world. Uh, We have uh, the biggest gaps between rich and poor of the high-income world. And on the environment, we're massive polluters, unfortunately. We emit almost 17 tons of carbon dioxide per American every year, one of the highest rates in the world and therefore one of the biggest contributors to global warming. So among the high-income countries, we're near the bottom. The countries that are at the top, not surprisingly for some of us who watch these things and have the chance to visit them, are the Scandinavian countries. This year, Sweden is number one, Denmark number two, Finland number three. Uh, Those countries have a remarkable combination of prosperity and social fairness and environmental sustainability. I believe you've also written that the countries that are the happiest are the countries where they tax themselves the most. It's exactly the opposite of uh, the American assumption. Uh, which is uh, cut taxes and people will be happy. But the uh, countries uh, that I've just named, uh, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, uh, they rank the highest in happiness. How do you know about happiness? Because Gallup International asks people all over the world, uh, how satisfied are you with your life? Uh, This year, the country that ranked the highest in that was Finland, followed by Norway and Denmark. And then look at their taxes. They're taxing half of the national income in those countries. And you'd say, my God, everybody must feel miserable. But what they use those taxes for is free universal access to quality health, free universal access to 
quality education, no student debt for uh, university, uh, child care for all, six weeks vacation for all. In other words, they're living the good life. They pay the taxes, but then the government services that they get give them the life that we all think uh, is the kind of life we would like, which is the access to quality services and leisure time and uh, ability to raise our kids in safety. Well, then what do you say to those critics that may describe the United States as a place where innovation and the motivation to succeed that drive is particularly because there is not the state support for the very things that you describe that the individual has to work themselves in an outsized way in order to make those things a reality? Well, I think there's some truth to that. Uh, the U.S. is an innovative society, but so too are those countries uh, in Northern Europe. They're doing it a bit different differently, but they are competing on world markets and cutting-edge industries. Sweden, we know from Spotify and so many others, are very uh, dynamic and, and uh, exciting uh, startup uh, places in the world. But what we have in the United States is a kind of excess because we now have an epidemic of suicides. We have an epidemic of uh, drug addictions, uh, opiate addictions. We have falling life expectancy in this country. We have more people uh, behind bars uh, than uh, any other high-income country in the world by far uh, in uh, per-population terms. We've got rising uh, depression rates in this country. Um, we've got some serious, serious social problems that we're not attending to. And we're also doing damage for the future in not even paying attention, not even caring, just denying all of the environmental issues which are staring us in the face. When you're hit by three mega hurricanes, massive forest fires, and say, duh, uh, we don't believe in that, it shows a, a pretty high degree of political corruption or neglect or a combination of the two. So, no, I don't think that the United States is balancing these various factors very well right now. Let me just push you a little bit more. The very things that you described, they could not all be the result of activity over the last 18 months. Do you believe that these are the very issues that President Donald Trump ran against or at least offered solutions for? And as a result, what President Trump is doing now makes sense in light of what you've just described? Well, First of all, the things that I've been describing are trends over the last 40 years. So this is absolutely not about uh, Donald Trump. This is about America. And this has been going on for a long time. I wish I could say that the kinds of directions that we're taking right now would be addressing these issues, but I just don't see it. Tax cuts uh, for the rich, larger budget deficits, where is the rebuilding of infrastructure? I don't see it. Uh, we're cutting uh, social services. We're uh, squeezing uh, help for the poor. We have an epidemic of uh, school shootings. We have anxiety in this country division. So uh, these are not uh, the, the uh, immediate uh, results of uh, this president. 
But I don't see that we're moving in the direction to address these problems. I think you're absolutely right, by the way, that a lot of the support that he got was a reflection of this sense that we're moving in the wrong direction. But I don't see us getting on the right direction in the specific kinds of approaches that are underway right now. I want to get your views on something specific that, of course, happened in London uh, over the last couple of uh, 48 hours. Uh, the resignation of Boris Johnson, of Foreign Secretary David Davis, Brexit uh, cabinet minister. What do you believe will happen with uh, Brexit? And uh, maybe you have different scenarios. I don't think that there is a good scenario for the UK. That's what they're realizing. That's why they can't uh, get behind a, a single approach because the Brexiteers sold a, a kind of utopian view that they'd save so much money, they'd have so much benefit by leaving Europe. Now they're realizing that they're basically going to give up uh, their markets, their uh, economy, and so they're scrambling to try to keep the link with Europe. And what uh, emerged from this realization was uh, what's called the soft Brexit, which is, well, we'll leave the European Union, but we'll basically stay in the terms of Europe. That's what caused uh, these uh, two cabinet uh, members to leave this soft option. But the hard option is even uglier. So they've really been backed to a corner Basically, uh, the, the slim majority to leave was sold a bill of goods. Uh, it, they can't deliver, and that's why there's no consensus within the uh, conservative uh, government. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, much appreciated. Professor uh, Jeffrey Sachs, you can follow uh, Professor Sachs on Twitter at Jeff D. Sachs, and he is also the author of the third annual Global Index on Sustainable Development Goals. Tom, you know, you were speaking about uh, Brett uh, Kavanaugh as uh, Donald Trump's, uh, President Donald Trump's selection uh, to the uh, seat being vacated by uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy. And really, uh, we've got uh, someone who is uh, the best, I would say, to tell us about yes. the selection is uh, Mr. Ken Starr. He is a former Whitewater Independent Counsel, former U.S. Solicitor General. He's a former judge, and he is now the author of a book entitled <clears throat> Contempt, a memoir of the Clinton investigation that comes out in september ken star joins us from our 99.1 studios in washington dc ken star thank you very much for being with us oh my pleasure thank you give us your first impressions about learning that uh that mr kavanaugh the judge kavanaugh uh has been tapped to uh join the supreme court uh joy uh, uh brett's a great uh, man uh, he's a great human being uh extremely able uh, but he is a person of great uh, humility and kindness, generosity of spirit. I think that character started to be seen by the American people uh, last evening. Uh, he, he worked he, for you. He did. What did we he do for you? Well, we worked together both uh, in uh, my former law firm of Kirkland & Ellis uh, here in Washington, D.C. I recruited uh, Brett off of the clerkship with Justice Kennedy. So I won the Brett Kavanaugh Derby, so we worked together as private uh, practitioners. Uh, uh, but we also worked uh, together in the uh, 
uh, the Whitewater investigation, and uh, he performed uh, brilliantly every, every task. So he, he, one of the great things about Brad is he has just tremendous judgment, and that came through in the uh, most, uh, shall I say, controversial parts of the investigation involving uh, Monica Lewinsky. But he was uh, with me off and on through that uh, very long uh, period of time, taking on different responsibilities and doing a great job. I wonder if you could comment on the idea that a great judgment is now being exercised in a world of great political partisanship. Yes. The job of a judge is to set all that aside, to leave his or her politics at the door, and to say, I've got to concentrate on the facts and on the law, and I need to respect both. I'm not to manipulate either one to achieve a desired uh, result. And that's especially hard for uh, judges in the federal system uh, interpreting our Constitution where there is running room, there's elasticity. What is the meaning of freedom of speech or free exercise of religion? Uh, So these uh, do call for for judgment Mm. and one of the things about Brad, about Judge Kavanaugh, uh, is he will approach the uh, task with a really admirable humility and say, I, I really need to listen and learn and evaluate and assess. Now, he doesn't come to it without principles, and we heard some of those principles uh, last night. Uh, he believes the Constitution is the law of the land. And while there is room for interpretation, right. what it does mean, just very briefly, is the judge or justice is not to impose his or her own policy preferences on we the people. So that's that's the beginning of the conversation, and I think it's going to be a great conversation. There will be a lot of yelling, unfortunately, but that's just yeah. uh, welcome to democracy. Ken Starr, within our democracy, there was a time, which I remember, and I'm going to think of Jacob Javits and others, where you 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 checked on the guy's credentials— and then even if you didn't agree with their politics, you voted them in. And we seem to have removed ourselves from that. Do you have a nostalgia that we can get back pre-Robert Bork, pre-Abe Fortas, to some form of Supreme Court process where we just say somebody's qualified okay? Uh, it, it can happen. Uh, I don't see the path forward to making it happen. But, it, but even after the uh, Judge Bork uh, situation, Uh, Ruth Ginsburg uh, ran the gauntlet, and her nomination was approved almost unanimously. Now, Ruth, uh, who's a a great human being and and obviously a very distinguished uh, judge, had a record that uh, all conservative Republicans would, in the current environment, would have said no. Of course she's capable and she's honest and the like, but we don't agree with her, and therefore we'll vote against her. Again, the vote was almost almost unanimous. Ditto with Stephen Breyer. Now, these, um, th- this wasn't so terribly long ago. It was the last century. Why the can't 1990s. we get back to that? It, it's, for, for one thing, uh, I think the emergence uh, of the special interest groups, and that's who we were hearing from last evening, and the special interest groups, not that they didn't exist before, but I think there's just great power and they have platforms. They raise enormous amounts of money. And so they're inflaming, I think, on, on both sides of the aisle, they're inflaming yeah. passions. One thing you did within all of your public service and the controversy over Ken Starr, which Pim and I remember so well, is then you went on to a bigger headache, which was a college president. <laughs> which has got to be the worst job in America. I mean, it's by, the, by it's any, very hard. By any, what did you learn 
going from the Ken Starr craziness of Washington and all the controversy. For those of you younger folks, Ken Starr was mentioned in every third news story for about two years. What was it like when you realized you had a bigger challenge at Baylor University? <laughs> it, it is talking about humbling and the, and the need for humility. Uh, but I felt very privileged uh, to be at, at Baylor University with its great history, the oldest continuingly operating university in the state of Texas. Uh, before the state of Texas was, uh, there was Baylor University. So it had a great tradition. I'm, I'm a sixth-generation Texan, so it was a great call home. We but won't hold that against you. <laughs> uh, no, I I put that to my credit, but you're, you're very kind. Thank you. And so the, the long and short of it is a university is extremely complex with many constituencies. And I think in many respects, being a college president is tougher than being a United States senator. I never was one, but I've been on Capitol Hill a lot uh, because trying to manage those constituencies, but also in this day and time, showing courage showing courage and to say, no, this is what we stand for. For example, uh, I'm a free speech guy. And so the idea that, uh, I use this just as an example, that speakers on college campuses can be uh, heckled and so forth and, and, and almost physically assaulted is utterly inimical to what a university stands for. And I think college presidents, university presidents, have to take the lead and stand up and say, no, that's wrong. We don't do that. Uh, and that and that takes courage. Uh, so uh, I, I learned you need to be courageous virtually uh, every day and trying to manage the constituencies but, but constituencies, but also say, hey, what is it that we're here to do? And as I was fond of saying, it's all about the students. If what we're doing isn't about student welfare and well-being, then we need to really reassess. Kenneth Starr, thank you so much for joining us today to comment on uh, your former clerk, Mr. Kavanaugh, who starts a path uh, towards the Supreme Court. Ken Starr, the former Whitewater Independent Counsel, U.S. Solicitor General, and of course a former uh, judge as well. Pim, I thought that was great. Uh, we should, you know, it's great to talk to people that either worked for whoever we're talking about or they worked for them. Yeah, you get a whole different perspective, don't you? Yes, and uh, just to uh, remind everyone that uh, Ken Starr has a book that is uh, yes, scheduled please. to come out in September. It is entitled Contempt, a memoir of the Clinton investigation. That will be out in yeah. September by Ken Starr. This is the interview of the day, because within all the uproar of speaking to the elites of Washington, the elites of New York, the people in six zip codes, or certainly Pim Fox, the elites of this London, England, there is another United Kingdom. Daniel Krasinski is the Minister of Parliament for the Wisconsin of the United Kingdom. It is to the northwest. It is buttressed up against the border with Wales. Um, Minister, wonderful to have you with us today. Are there more cows than people in your district? <laughs> well, good afternoon. Uh, we in Shropshire are very proud of our uh, cattle farming. Uh, we have a lot of uh, some of the best uh, yeah. uh, cattle ranches in the country. And uh, yes, the, 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 we are a very agriculturally-based community. I am horrifically guilty, unlike Pim, who's a, who's a rural kind of guy 
of only focusing on England and the five newspapers. How do the people of your district, how does rural United Kingdom, how do people outside the seven zip codes of London, how do they respond to the uproar of the last 48 hours? Well, I think the British people uh, generally are are very um, sensible, pragmatic people, but uh, they uh, want, uh, they have experimented with, they have allowed this experiment of uh, being a member of the, first the European Economic Community, then the European Community, and then the European Union, because it has morphed into something completely different from what we joined in 1972. They have allowed this experiment to continue for 46 years. Uh, and they have come to the conclusion that it does not suit our country. We have tried very hard. We have been very patient. They have been very tolerant. They have acquiesced to us handing over nearly $750 billion to the European Union since we joined. They have seen a huge amount of um, our powers being uh, diminished as a result of uh, legislation coming from the European Parliament. They have gone along with all of that. But finally, they've come to the conclusion that they want to get back to being a sovereign nation state. Uh, And they don't want to continue on the path of moving ever closer into a supranationalist state, which is exactly what's happening on the continent of Europe. Uh, Daniel Korzynski, I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit about the Conservative Party, and do you believe that they will eventually speak with one voice as regards a Brexit conclusion? No country uh, in my lifetime has ever successfully negotiated pulling out of the European Union. This one-size-fits-all straitjacket, which the elites of Brussels, who are, by the way, unelected and unaccountable to the people, but this straitjacket, which they want to impose on the whole of the continent, is something that, as I've said, is not for us. And being the first to do something is always fraught with difficulties. I say to some of my constituents, Brexit feels sometimes as if we are walking through a minefield. But what we're doing is we are laying out a path with breadcrumbs for others to follow. And when other countries, particularly my country where I was born, Poland and others, when they see the United Kingdom thriving outside of the European Union, navigating as a global country with uh, all the other countries around the world, because, of course, 95% of the world's growth is coming from outside of the European Union, they will want to follow us into becoming sovereign nation states. So, of course, it's difficult, but we are absolutely resolved as a Mm -hmm. party and determined to put the best foot forward in our negotiating stance. In in the interviews that I've done, uh, sir, with the people that are remain, or like you, the people that are leave, all are focused on Michael Gove. Tell our American and our global audience who Michael Gove is and why you're watching him in the next two days, the next two weeks, the next two months. Well, Michael Gove uh, had, you know, when we had the Prime Minister Cameron, he tried to, I think, uh, make sure that all of us went along with his dream of campaigning to remain in the European Union. He brought back a negotiation which many of us considered to be a fig leaf, uh, something which wasn't worth the paper it was written on. That's why people like Michael Gove decided, a senior member of the cabinet decided to rebel and to actually say to him, no, I am going to campaign for Brexit. He showed great vision, uh, a great courage at that time, and many of us supported his stance. 
that's one of the reasons I voted him for him to be the leader of my party. He is still in the cabinet, and he has decided, in his wisdom, along with his other Brexit colleagues in the cabinet, that this Chequers settlement that the Prime Minister has presented to the cabinet is the most pragmatic way forward. And as long as he continues to support the Prime Minister, then many of us moderates uh, in the Conservative Party uh, will also give her that space to try to negotiate something tangible and mutually Um, beneficial with the European Union. Thank you so much. Daniel Krasinski with us uh, from Shropshire in the the, uh, northwest of the United Kingdom and, of course, a member of Parliament. The president will leave for Europe. We are saying Trump in Europe, and we need perspective. We're going to do a lot on this in the next number of days. As Francine Lacroix and I travel to Helsinki, Pim Fox in New York. I'm Tom Keene in London. And joining us now, someone you need to listen to, Charles Kupchin, uh, Council on Foreign Relations, their senior fellow in an exceptionally interesting and varied experience with NATO. Dr. Kupchin, good morning. What is the thing that we most get wrong about NATO? We go NATO, and I know it's from another time and place, and we talk to Stravitas, or we talk to Kaplan, and we talk to Haas. What's the thing that drives you nuts about what the media covers of NATO? You know, I, I think the, the key point here is that the president is right, that allies have not spent enough on defense and need to do more. We we spend about twice as a percent of GDP uh, what they do on defense. But the the constant haranguing of our traditional European allies, the dissing of NATO, that's, that's where I think the president is off the mark. Because if you think historically, if you think about the onset of racism, of anti-Semitism, of World War I, of World War II, and the unique revolutionary success that the Atlantic democracies have had in carving out a peaceful world, you don't want to mess with that. You don't want to tinker with that. We don't want to go back to the 19th century. And that's where I think uh, Trump is, is, uh, is taking threatening actions and shaking the foundations of the world that Americans worked so hard to build after 1945. Right. Well, within that, and from the Atlantic Charter on, was the new way. and then. Some would say, including Mearsheimer at Chicago, that we overreached, that we took some adjacencies and then we really buttressed up against Mr. Putin by jawboning about Georgia, jawboning about this and that. And the result was Crimea, maybe even Ukraine. Did we overreach? I think we did overreach. You know, I I think in the in the triumphalism that came after the end of the Cold War, we thought we could we could take at NATO and our principles and our charters and simply extend them eastward. And the result was that we crawled right up close to Russia, and Russia felt uncomfortable. You know, to, to use a kind of analogy or counterfactual, if Russia formed an alliance with Mexico and Canada and deployed Russian troops on our border, we would go crazy, right? Uh, and so we, we sort of did that with, with the Russians. That having been said, I don't think that there's any 
reason that that kind of decision to expand NATO it justifies what the Russians have did in Ukraine or what they've done in Georgia or what they've done in terms of interfering in Western uh, elections. So uh, I do think that we need to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff and make sure that our core relationships with the UK, with France, with Germany are in good working order. If they're not, we are in deep trouble. Charles Kupchen, uh, does the United States' outsized contribution to NATO bring us outsized benefits, such as the dollar as a reserve currency, and also the United States having a bigger voice in NATO and European affairs as a result? You know, there's no question that the uh, what we call the liberal international order is also the American order. Uh, the world that was built by Americans and Europeans and Japanese and South Koreans after World War II was a world that benefited the American people, American corporations, the American way of life. That's one of the reasons that the Chinese and the Russians don't like it, because it represents our values. It organizes societies in the way that we like to organize them. So, yes, we do reap inordinate benefits. But I do think that the, that the kind of key issue here is we have carved out a unique, historically unprecedented zone of peace across the Atlantic, right, from our West Coast right through Poland and the eastern frontier of NATO. There's a group of nations among which war is unthinkable to, to tinker with that, to threaten that, to insult Germans as unworthy allies because they sell more BMWs here than we sell Fords in Germany, that doesn't strike me as a move that's in the interests of Americans. Yeah, let's press the Germans to spend more on defense, but let's treat them with respect and realize that if the U.S. relationship with Germany or the French relationship with Germany goes south, the, the, the fundamental anchors of global peace are going to disappear. Do you believe that the position of the United States will also hurt the ability of U.S. defense companies to sell their wares to our allies? For example, the Europeans are looking at a new Eurofighter rather than taking on the new F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. Yeah, some of that some of that is in play. You know, the Turks, uh, with whom we have a troubled relationship right now, have been looking at Russian military equipment. On the other hand, Poland has recently made a decision to buy Patriot missiles, so they're, uh, they're buying American. Uh, in many respects, these decisions are made on the basis of cost and military efficacy, not on when you, whether you tilt this way or, or that way. But I think over time, if our relationship with Europe sours and, and the economic uh, tariffs that we have recently imposed on steel and aluminum and tariffs that might yeah. follow on other products, you know, that that adds to the sense uh, of estrangement. So I do think we, we need to, to put the cart before the horse and make sure that our fundamental relationships yeah. are fine and that we don't see a rising tide of anti-Americanism spread across Europe. Dr. Kupchin, what outcome does Vladimir Putin want from the NATO meetings that he will not attend? Well, you know, unfortunately, I think Mr. Trump, whether he knows it or not, is doing Putin's bidding. 
because what Putin wants is a weakening of the West. What Putin wants is democracies that turn against themselves. What Putin wants is a European Union that suffers setbacks, such as the departure of the United Kingdom, a country that you're in right now. And so uh, the, the kind of dif- uh, differences and the open acrimony that we see right now and the degree to which the European Union is dealing with rising populism, that's all what, uh, what Putin wants. And so I think the real danger this week is that Mr. Trump goes to Europe. He ends up creating a, a, a sense of, of distance and a sense of alienation within NATO. And then he goes to Helsinki and is chummy-chummy shoulder-to-shoulder with the Russian president. That's, that's the last signal that I think the United States president should be sending to, uh, to European allies. Dr. Kupchin, uh, as a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and also professor at the Walsh School of Foreign Service uh, at Georgetown University, I know you served uh, on the staff of the National Security Council in the Obama administration. Do you really believe that this is the end of the American era? I think that we don't know yet. Uh, I think that it's possible that historians will look back at 2018 and 2019 and say that was the day, that was the moment that the order that was built during the, the tough years after World War II came undone. It's also possible that we're, that we're witnessing a detour, that the populism here in the U.K., in Germany, in Poland, in Hungary, in Turkey, is a response to dislocation, to globalization, to the onset of the digital economy. And we'll figure out how to adjust to this shift, just as we figured out how to adjust to previous shifts. But I don't think that we should be Pollyannish about the scope of the changes that are going on within our societies. And I do hope that Uh, whether it's two years from now or uh, six years from now or whatever, that, that we do see the pendulum swing back in the direction of political centrism, political moderation. Thank you very much, uh, Charles Kupchin, Senior Fellow, Council on Foreign Relations, also Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.